Hello, everybody, and welcome to today's Euractive online event, where we'll be talking about the role of science in sustainable food and how to communicate it. My name is Dave Keating. I'm a journalist based here in Brussels, and I'm coming at you live from the Euractive studios in the heart of the EU quarter. Now, today's discussion comes at a time when there is more and more concern about sustainability in food and agriculture. We know that science has a key role to play in this transition, but there have been a lot of questions asked about how science is being used in policy making and in communicating policy. The European Commission has launched a high-level expert group to assess how science is being used and coordinated. The group is assessing whether to set up an international platform for food systems science and looking at how it might work if it was to be set up. In particular, this expert group will address gaps in the provision of food systems science and evidence in view of supporting an improved global food system governance. All this work is being undertaken with a view toward the UN Food Systems Pre-Summit, planned in Rome later this month, which, among other things, is looking at how the international science policy interface could be strengthened for improved food systems governance. It will culminate in the global event in September by bringing together diverse actors from around the world to leverage the power of food systems to deliver progress on all 17 sustainable development goals of the UN. So today we'll get a bit of insight into this process and hear some thoughts from our panelists about how sustainable and inclusive food systems can be fostered and communicated with sound science and data. Now let me introduce the panelists to you now. We have Tom Arnold, who is chair of that high-level expert group to assess the need for an international platform for food system science, uh, part of the European Commission. And we have Marta Hugas, chief scientist at the European Food Safety Authority, EFSA. We have Geert Meismans, global R&D leader at the Global Food Corporation Cargill. We have Jack Bobo, an author and food futurist. And we have Joanna Kenniwiska. Senior Manager for Food and Health Science at the European Food Information Council. Thanks all of you for joining us here today. Now, you guys at home are also going to be able to participate in the debate. You can ask your questions using the Q&A feature on Vimeo. I'm going to go ahead and start that Q&A feature now. So you'll notice on your screen, if you're watching on Vimeo, you'll see that's open. Go ahead and put in your questions starting now. Uh, that way I can keep an eye on them while we're having our discussion. And then toward the end of the panel, I'll be reading out your questions to the audience. Uh, sorry, to the panelists, rather. And then, of course, you can also participate in the debate on Twitter using the hashtag EADebates right there below me. So let's go ahead and talk to the panel about their thoughts on this topic. Tom, let's start with you. Tell us a little bit about your work on the expert panel. What would an international platform for food system science do, and what would it look like? Thanks, Dave. Well, I think one of the first things we have to do is relevant to the title of today's meeting about communication uh, on what we're doing. Because, you know, if, if I tell people that I'm a member of the expert group on food system science and we're asked to come up with a report to talk about improved food system governance at, at global level, uh, most people will scratch their head and wonder, well, what's all that about? So 
I, in terms of trying to keep it as simple as possible, I would make three points. The first one is that we are having a food system summit this year, 2021. This is a rare occasion. Over the past almost 80 years, there's been only six occasions when the world has thought that food is important enough to have a summit about it. So that's the first point. And it, it, how that should be reflected, I think, is that each, in each country that we were in, we should be attempting to communicate uh, to political leaders how impo important this is and how a, a country should take a position on it. The second point is, again, pretty basic, and it is that food, uh, f f the term food system is relatively new. We're only really talking in these terms for the last five or at most eight years. And what essentially it means is that we're no longer talking in simple terms about increasing production of food. We're talking about, in particular, how food links to climate, environment, and health. And how we understand these linkages and how we're beginning to start thinking in policy terms uh, about them. Now, in truth, relatively few countries are thinking in food systems terms. They're still thinking within their areas of policy for food and agriculture, or policies for the environment, or policies for health. And there's other policies that are relevant as well, but these are the three ones that I want to connect, focus on food, environment, and health. And so this year, and the holding of this summit, provides an opportunity for countries to start thinking and planning in this more in these more integrated terms so this i think is a big opportunity and then the third point uh, link go following on from those two is that we should be we talking in in quite practical terms about some of the consequences of of planning on a food systems basis now you had your active yesterday had i, I thought and i tuned into it a very interesting session, which was thinking through the consequences for different parts of the food chain of operating on a food systems basis. So you had retailers, you had uh, uh, policymakers, uh, and and you had you know representative of the different elements of the food chain, and beginning to talk in very practical terms as to what that meant for our our high level group. Our particular focus is on the whole area of what's called science policy interfaces. Are the, 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 do we have the elements of science policy? Do we have the data? Do we have the evidence to enable policymakers to make decisions and to monitor the decisions that they make about where food systems are going? So that's basically what we, we, we are doing. Where we're at in our work, we started our work in, in February. We are preparing a report uh, which will go both to the Food Systems Summit and to the European Commission. We're close enough to finalizing that report and we would expect to produce it uh, at the, the pre-summit meeting uh, in, in, at the end of July. Over, Dave. 
That's good to hear. We'll be seeing those results very shortly. Uh, I think it's really interesting what you say about the linkages there, because that's really key when we're talking about how all of these issues, when we're talking about food availability, food sustainability,、uh, they're all connected, and the science can help us really identify all the ways they're connected and how they influence each other. Marta, let's turn to you next. So EFSA is the、uh, EU authority that is really. Diving into these, the science and the data,、uh, and advising the Commission on how to make policy. So, from EFSA's perspective, how has science been used to underpin policy decisions from the EU in the past, and how might this evolve in the future? Good morning, Dave. Good morning,、um, everybody. Um, yes, as you said, EFSA is a risk assessment and also the risk communication body in matters of food safety. That means from animal health and plant health up to、uh, some mandates on, on nutrition. So we do not only assess the risk, but also we have to communicate the risk to decision makers and also to the public. And also for us, it's very important that we do that in collaboration with member states, risk assessment bodies, and also. Uh, by engaging with the various food chain stakeholders, so this is also very important elements that we take in our work. And yes, scientific bodies delivering scientific advice can do a lot to aid the transition to a more sustainable food system, without compromising food safety. But this process of delivering scientific advice needs to be very rigorous. In, and in EFSA, we have been doing so for the last almost 20 years. So we appraise scientific evidence on. Uh, on a rigorous way, with clear inclusion criteria, with clear appraising tools. Also, we include uncertainty assessments, and we are open to scrutiny via public consultations. And there is a lot of data and scientific knowledge that's、uh, there to support decision makers on food safety, and also on individual aspects of sustainability. A challenge, however, is to overcome the overall complexity of science in the context of sustain sustainability. The three pillars: the social, economic, and environmental, which go much beyond food safety science. So it needs to integrate knowledge and pulling interconnected data via cross domains and transdisciplinary cooperation of scientists. And I'll give you some examples. For example, using food consumption data to understand the impact of diet choices on the environment, or using climate change data in anticipating emerging risks for food safety. Or developing risk-benefit methodologies to give direction in case of trade-offs, etc. So science has contributed and can now further contribute to the progress in the sustainability of food systems, while strengthening food safety and nutrition security. For example, we should also in the future be able to identify adequate targets, criteria, and indicators for monitoring. So that they cover the whole food system and reflect the progress in moving towards、uh, a food systems approach and also towards sustainability. And measuring the progress, then we'll be able to demonstrate progress towards future-proofing systems, so they can become more sustainable, resilient, responsive, etc. But there is also a need to enhance capacity development in nutrition and food systems and promote networking and collaboration. And also update training programs to cover new developments in understanding foods and food systems, in addition to the wider ecological context. Then there is also in the future we'll see more and more a need for integrated risk assessment 
considering a one health approach. So also what Tom said to safeguard animal health, animal plant health and environment. So this food, environment and health, which for the moment we are not yet there. So we still need to develop further methodologies to be able to do this integration in risk assessments. So to provide the risk managers and policymakers with a more comprehensive evidence base for policy decisions. But beyond the scientific developments and what science can, can do, what is also extremely important is to have a coordinated approach to risk communications for the various scientific regulatory actors to the public. Because we need to explain the scientific complexity, the uncertainties, the knowledge gap, the new risk and hazards, the interlinks between traditional science domains and sustainability, and how all these can be translated to policy action. And this is necessary for maintaining public truth, trust, which we know is the most important thing. Thank you, over. Thanks a lot, Marta. Here, let's turn to you next. From a business perspective, how has science and data been used in the food sector in the past, up till now, and how could it be used in the future, uh, for instance, to improve sustainability? Well, thanks for the question, Dave, and good morning, everybody. Well, it's a very broad question, right? And so in the past, if you think about it, uh, science and data have always been there and have always been very actively used to help grow the food system. Uh, when I was born, not that long ago, there were three and a half billion people on this planet and about 20% were hungry. And today we've doubled that amount of people and we've halved the amount of people that were hungry. And, and science and technology data have been very much the basis of that element of the sustainable development goals. And then going on, science has always helped also to make sure we can better work with that trade-off between availability and affordability. Food has be become and food is still in many places of the world quite affordable. And if you're in a lucky place in the world, you benefit from that. And I'm a lucky person to work for a company like Cargill, who does take that debate on science and technology serious. And with our 155,000 colleagues all across the world, 70 countries where we're active in, we're trying to contribute in that. And from a business perspective, if we move on to feeding 10 billion people in the future, those data and the way science is being used will remain crucial, right? And as a company, we're quite good at dealing with the hard parts of that. We, we do see an increase in, um, I think Marta mentioned it as trade-offs, trade-offs between availability and affordability, between health and sustainability, those kind of things, what we see on the level of, of consumers. We see the same thing happening out the life of the farmers where we buy our raw materials from is getting more complex. They have to start balancing animal welfare and sustainability in different, way, different ways. They have to balance the economic viability of a farm with the different non-food uses of land in different ways as well. And again, as companies, the hard part of the science, that's something that we're very used to and that we embrace and, very, and we're very comfortable with dealing that. And that can go about using artificial intelligence to manage your farm, using acoustics to listen to how shrimps are eating their nutrition and so that you can fine tune and reduce the waste in that or how acoustics can help in determining if irrigation on a certain piece of land has been sufficient, yes or no. That can be about how health and, and, and microbiome evolutions are helping to decide how we feed people. 
And so those kind of things are the things that we're absolutely comfortable with and where we need to continue investing in. And I think you heard the element of trade-offs also in the word that Tom was talking about and that Marta was talking about, because it's not sufficient anymore. Things are moving and those, those trade-offs are becoming more and more difficult. And so we cannot rely on those quote-unquote life sciences, health sciences anymore as companies alone. We need to much better understand consumers and consumer science. And there's a lot because whatever we do as a company, if people are not buying it and if we're not solving a customer problem, then why are we doing it? It's, it's not going to go very far, is it? And so we need that consumer science to make sure that the products that we put on the market are being accepted and used. And then that last part of call it the social sciences, that science policy uh, interface that the previous speakers were talking about. If we don't provide good science data, and if we don't provide the system view on that, on how these things play together, it's becoming very difficult for re regulators and legislators as well to set up that social acceptance of what we're trying to do as a food system and, and to remain in business. And, to, and again, like I said, trying to get uh, to feeding 10 billion people. And that transition from where we are today to going through that rough patch where we are now, if we're moving to tell 10 billion people, that's never going to work if we don't have the right science and data behind that. And if we don't communicate those clearly to the audience. Thank you. Thanks, Kirt. It's quite an interesting example about the acoustics and the shrimp. I like that idea. Um, Jack, let's turn to you next. You're a feud futurist, so you're looking at these issues of how all of these things are going to work in the future. So what potential do you think there is for science to inform us about how to make future food more sustainable? And, and perhaps what's key here, why does communication matter? Yeah, thank you. And I'm really delighted to be here with a, such an esteemed panel. And I'd like to just pick up on some of the things that have already been said as well. Uh, as you mentioned, I'm a food futurist. I work with food tech companies and uh, ag tech startups, big food brands, helping them understand what does the future of food look like? Where are consumer trends and attitudes going? And how can organizations get ahead of trends so they don't get run over by them? And I think that goes to the heart of some of what we're talking about right now. And one of the things that I've learned in my last 20 years working on these issues is unfortunately science at the beginning of the conversation often polarizes the audience. Those who agree with you agree with you more, but those who disagree actually become more entrenched in their views. So if you don't have trust first, science really isn't gonna help resolve any of these issues. Um, so I'm really delighted that communication is really at the heart of the conversation we're having. Now, I'm a science optimist. I'm convinced that science and technology can help us solve the problems that we face and get us to a sustainable and nutritious and equitable future, but I'm also a regulatory pessimist. I'm not at all convinced that we will be allowed to use the tools that are developed to achieve that sustainable future. Now, getting to some of the technologies and ideas, I work with cell-based companies, alternative protein companies, plant-based companies, uh, fermentation companies that are doing all sorts of amazing things that will give us new ways to produce the food in the future and reduce the environmental footprint and change how we produce food. And all of that's very important. Now, it's not just from a production side, but it's reducing the impact of agriculture on the planet as well. But it's important to recognize that science tells us what we can do. 
but it's the public that tells us what we should do. And too often right now, the public is not on board with many of the innovations that are coming forward from companies. And so if we have the technology sitting on a shelf and we never get to use them, that's gonna be the biggest or the greatest tragedy of all. And today we focus so much on the problems of agriculture and rightly so, there are many critical problems. 40 to 50% of all the land on the earth that could be used for agriculture is being used for agriculture today. The amount of cropland is the size of South America. The amount of pasture land is the size of Africa. So the footprint in terms of land is bigger or uh, is bigger than we would like it to be. 70% of all freshwater going to agriculture, 25 to 30% of greenhouse gas emissions related to agriculture. But that's the problem today. But the framing is things are bad and getting worse in most of the conversations that I see around food systems. However, if we were producing food today, the way we did in 1960 with 1960s technology, we would need 1 billion additional hectares of land in order to produce the food we do, we have. That's more than a quarter of all the forests on the planet. There are only 3.5 billion hectares of forest remaining. And so we would have had to cut down a billion hectares to produce the food we have today without innovation, without technology, without better management practices. And that's the story that's not yet being told. Because if people think that agriculture is the problem to be solved and that farmers are the problem to be solved and that food companies are the problem to be solved, well, why would any of those groups work with us in order to solve the problem? On the other hand, if the problem is framed that farmers and scientists and food companies are the solution to the problem, then we can engage with them in order to create that more sustainable and nutritious future. And that's why the how we communicate these issues are so important. Are things bad and getting worse or good and getting better, but not fast enough? It's very important how we communicate these issues. And so the words we use matter a lot. And so I'm looking forward to the rest of the conversation so we can sort of dive into some of these issues in more detail. For sure, that's what we're here for today. Um, let's go to Joanna next. Um, Joanna, how do you think that food information can better help the world toward its sustainability goals? Yeah, thank you, Dave. Uh, it's a pleasure to be here. Uh, and good morning, everyone. I think, you know, the goal of achieving sustainable food systems is one of the, the key global concerns at the moment. And it's nearly a cliche to say, and also following a little bit of what Gerd was saying, um, I think it's critical to remind that the, the global population is, is on the rise and nearly 8 billion people will be on this planet by 2030 and, and keep going. And that creates a huge demand for more varied, high-quality diet. And of course, that requires additional resources to produce on new technologies, um, as Jack was just saying. And at the same time, a significant share of a global population is suffering from malnutrition and undernutrition. So we're having that uh, situation that where the shift towards sustainable food systems is, is essential and can be achieved with joint forces and alignment of many different stakeholders um, involved in that debate. And to me, engaging collectively different actors of the society 
but treating them all as individual agents of change through aligned communication on the food system topic brings mutual benefits and increases our chances. What I like to focus on specifically, um, or who I want to focus on specifically, are the citizens, because they are really a central point to success of food system transformation. At the end of the day, the citizens are the key to setting the market demand for food, and that means that we need to raise the awareness of how important their choices are. Um, and how are we going to do it? Well, enabling, empowering, and involving the citizens to make healthier and more sustainable food choices and lifestyle choices is critical um, puzzle in that, uh, you know, a piece of the puzzle towards more sustainable future. To do so, we need to ensure that we provide consumers with the best food information possible. And that means that information needs to be accurate, science-based, accessible, and actionable. It needs to be tailored to our audiences that we communicate to, and also uh, delivered using the channels that our audiences um, are looking at. And also what's important is all those communication needs to be developed through engagement and discussions with all those actors, all those stakeholders in the, in the area um, and also the audience themselves. So I think by providing better, and by better I mean accurate yet engaging food information um, will increase the understanding of the problem, the need of more sustainable food systems and having well-informed and educated citizens who have trust in science and trust in what the direction we are leading towards um, is, the, is a by now well-recognized step towards achieving those sustainable goals. Thanks a lot, Joanna. Um, so I wanted to first ask you guys about communication, because I think this is so key, especially here in Brussels. So many of the debates that we've had around food have revolved around this question of communication uh, with the public, because we know that food is not only an issue that we all deal with every day, for obvious reasons, <laughs> to keep ourselves alive, uh, but also it's something that... Uh, is very emotional for people, I think. I think food is uh, an, an issue that people feel strongly about. And so then communicating the science to people on the issue of food becomes extra important, right? So Tom, I wanted to ask you, when it comes to communicating science, what do you think is the best, the best way to go about it? And how can we make sure that science is being listened to by the public? Well, firstly, I very much appreciate the comments that my fellow panelists have made in the first round of, of discussion. Um, and it does come down to um, communication. But what is clear, a couple of things that I would say are, are uh, really important as background to answering your question, Dave. Firstly, um, there are now, I think, big political decisions have been taken, uh, certainly at European level, about the direction of policy, there's still a lot of uh, a, there's still a lot of decisions to be made 
uh, as to how that policy will translate from a European level to a member state level. And so, and if you look at, for example, at the common agricultural policy and the strategic plan, CAP strategic plans that are being, uh, that are being uh, framed at the moment in, in different countries, uh, you're, you're seeing a shift of decision-making power back to member states. So that's going to require discussion, debate, uh, indeed argument uh, in each member state as to the direction, uh, as to the policy that, that need to be made in, in different countries. And this is where we, we are into the business of trade-offs, which have come up, come up in the first round. And trade-offs are a very, re, very much a reality. And I've just been involved in, in, in finalizing uh, an, uh, an agri-food strategy up to 2030 for Ireland. And we had all the main parties around the table. And for example, when you come to the different perspectives of uh, say the, the environmentalists and the farmers, inevitably you have quite different perspectives here. So the, the question is, can we find some level of broad middle ground, which will enable people to, uh, to, 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 to agree on what the policy should be over the next number of years? So that's an example where, you know, the communication is going to come up with, is, is going to have to be very good and it's going to have to be central to uh, finding a way forward which resolves these different trade-offs. The other, another area which was raised and particularly by Marta is this link between nutrition, uh, diet and health. Uh, I, I think the, the debate about food systems is raising that issue up to a new level, a new level of profile. And the background, of course, is that in all developed countries and indeed in many developing countries, the problems of you have this triple burden of malnutrition. You, you've got, in, particularly in developing countries, undernutrition, but increasingly the problems of overweight and obesity and the links they have to non-communicable diseases. This is a major problem which we're going to have to face up to in much greater, uh, with much greater commitment. And so I see the, 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 the debate around food systems as enabling countries to focus more on this issue and to, to raise its importance in policy and political terms and communicating that the centrality of an issue like this, the link between nutrition, diet and health, this is a real opportunity to move that issue up the agenda and, uh, and, to, and to give it the attention that it deserves. Joanna, I want to get your perspective on this because this is your bread and butter when we're talking about providing scientific information to the public. Uh, how do you think uh, this type of information can be better communicated so that we make sure that people are listening? Yeah, indeed. I think it's, it's a lot to do with the way we present the information and uh, we, we give it to the public. So I would like to share an experience uh, from UVic uh, because we came a long way from uh, from firstly communicating or writing a, a long reviews articles of what the science has found and shown and all the research that has been done to then really taking a sharp turn into creating much more engaging shorter visual um, 
content. Uh, and that's something that we took an inspiration from uh, the cognitive science, you know, where we know that uh, people retain more information when they see it. They, they, the picture speaks more than the words. And also people are much more drawn to, to quick information and quick, uh, quick visual content. So I think this is very important that we want to show people that science is not scary, that science is engaging, science is interesting and, and understandable. You know, if, if we presented it well, then we, we can understand it and people shouldn't be worried about the, the, the amount of information there is. Um, and that's also a, you know, a question to scientists as well. How are you going to, to present your information? How can you package it in the way that is understandable to, uh, to the to general public, to the lay audience? Marta, you mentioned at the beginning that part of EFSA's remit is communicating the science. So uh, how, do you, how do you think we can make sure that the public is receiving that message? Uh, and I wonder, is it sometimes frustrating uh, when you're trying to get the message out to people? Is it, is it sometimes hard actually to get the, the information you're trying to convey out to the people you're trying to reach? Um, thank you, Dave. Yes, uh, you know, there are many challenges in communicating science. One is that the language that is not only accurate, but also understandable and accessible to the public. To the public. And this is, in fact, a cornerstone of our recently approved strategy, applying an audience-first approach to our communication. In other words, making our risk assessment advice useful and understandable through transparent, coherent, actionable, and trustworthy risk communication. The second challenge is this word, being trustworthy. This implies that it's, it has to be very clear that the advice comes from a, an independent, transparent, open, and responsive body. So, and this demands a shift from a one-way provision of information to a new way of engaging in open dialogue with interested parties. So yes, EFSA has progressed in this area over the years, but the, now, the new adopted transparency regulation go a long way here, allowing regulators to really evolve the stakeholder engagement model. But coming to, to reality, yes, it's true that sometimes we see also that our communication or, or the outcomes that we produce and that we communicate are not taken on the same way, depending on the direction it goes. So if it fits uh, the agenda of some you know, stakeholders, they praise it. If, they do, if it doesn't fit the agenda of other stakeholders, sometimes then we are blamed by not being transparent enough, not being independent enough. So this is also why we go every time more and more to show it's not only being independent, but also being as perceived as independent. And that's our uh, policy on declaration of interest and conflicts, you know, from the experts that work for us. It's one of the most stricter that we we have in the you know in the science domain and but we believe that that's the way to go so it's not only being but also being perceived as to be able to be uh, understand as a trustworthy uh, source of uh, of uh, you know communicating on, on the risk on the food chain for sure that's something i've observed that when people like the science it's great science and when they don't like the science then they uh, have other things to say about it. 
Jack, um, I know you wanted to come in on this. How do you think we can make sure that science is not only being listened to, but also trusted? Yeah, and you know, this is really the topic of the book that I just published, Why Smart People Make Bad Food Choices. And you know, trust is key, and good information is critical, but even when you have trust and even when you have good information, people still don't necessarily make the choice that they should. And I think you know, food and obesity is a really important example. 42% of Americans are obese, 75% are overweight or obese, it'll be 50% obese by 2050. And we have more information, more good information about health and nutrition than we ever have in the history of the planet, and we've never been more obese. People mostly know what they should be eating, but they're not doing it. And so I think added on to this layer of you know, trust and good information and how we convey the information is just the idea that we may also need to reshape our food environment so that the, the outcome that people want to do, the choice they want to make is the easy choice, it's the default choice. And so that gets to some of the points that Joanna was also making is that our food environment you know, has changed dramatically in the last 50 years. And so let's not lose sight just of you know, information, but how information is conveyed and sort of the, the broader environment and context in which it's um, encountered. So the choice architecture will be critical. Hirtz, I want to get your perspective on this from a business perspective. I mean, I imagine a lot of this also relies on kind of science literacy and, and food literacy. How do we make sure that people have the, the tools to be able to understand the science? Yeah, exactly. And that, that's a little bit the point I want to make when, when Marta was mentioning also audience first. Uh, I think we all are different audiences, right? Uh, at home, we talk differently than, than when we are in the job environment when we, and we talk differently at other places. And because food is, is something which is so common to us, it starts at such a young age. And to the point that you guys were making earlier, food is emotion. And food has so much, many more dimensions than the pure science. It's very difficult to make sure that we communicate it right. You, you communicate it right. And then, and therefore, you have to start early. And one of the learnings that we had also with the European Specialty Food Ingredients uh, Association is that if people, because the, in a crisis situation, it's very easy to attract people's attention to what's the science behind a COVID vaccine and those kind of things. But in something which is basic and common, if you don't start at early age and make sure that young people understand where food comes from, why that healthy choice is, is important, why that food architecture, that food environment that Jack was talking about is so important, we'll never get there because we have to grab that attention so early in life so that people as they age, as we all grow older, that we still remain interested in the science behind it because without interest in simply the basics of what it is, we'll never get past the negative emotion part. And if we can communicate not only science in the visual ways that, that Joanna was talking about, so that people are interested and are looking for it from a positive choice point of view, it makes the communication so much easier, right? Thanks, Dave. So just a reminder, you guys at home can ask your questions to the panelists by using the Q&A feature on Vimeo. We've got some good questions in already. I'm going to take those in a moment. But first, I wanted to ask about emotion in food policy and some of the examples that we have seen. And my question is really, how do we get the balance right between listening 
to citizens, listening to their concerns, listening to their opinions even that, that might not be based on science, and using science to address those concerns or you know, try to, even if, uh, even if you maybe can't always. Uh, and in that respect, I do want to uh, use maybe the experience of GMOs and novel foods, uh, which has been a very emotional debate here in Brussels, we know, and there's been a lot of uh, different opinions about the science. I think it's one of those policy questions here in the EU where uh, the science gets very contentious, for sure. So what lessons have we learned from those experiences in terms of respecting citizens' opinions, being responsive to citizens' opinions in terms of setting policy, but also listening to the science. Um, who would like to start with that? Maybe Marta, since it's, you've been innately involved in this, uh, what, what's, your, what's your thinking on that? Well, yes, emotion is for sure a factor that affects consumer perception. There are also other factors that play an important role as well, such as culture, personality, traits, or even biases we may have, one may have. But what we launched a recent Eurobarometer in 2019, which showed that European citizens are concerned about the diversity of issues when it comes to food safety. And highest on the list were not uh, GMO or GM modified ingredients, but it was antibiotics, hormones, or sterile residues in meat, followed by pesticide residues, environmental pollutants. So this was, uh, and then it was followed by more than a quarter that had concern about food hygiene, food poisoning from bacteria, and um, genetically modified ingredients in food or drinks was also registered as a concern by 20% of the respondents. We also see a variety in perception at the country level. You know, Europe is a rich, diverse, very different perception, different consumer attitudes from north to south, from east to west. And uh, for example, we saw that in Sweden, antibiotics and hormone or steroid residues was the most contested issues, while pesticide residues were more in Greece. So in our view, a key to successful communication of science is understanding this perception, which is something that varies both regionally and temporally. And social science insights can help significantly there by highlighting what concerns consumers most and attempting to address that along the risk analysis communication continues. Obviously, it's also about taking account of perceptions to identify routes of communication or engagement that are likely to be more efficient in reaching a certain audience. So at the end of the day, it's all about understanding the audience and trying to provide information that meets their needs. But as also Johanna mentioned, in the future, there might be no other way to you know, tackle the challenges we have ahead to really bring innovation to our plates. And innovation can have different forms. And we know that some forms of innovation are very welcome by, uh, by consumers, for example, the impossible burgers or the non-meat burgers. Uh, on, on other areas, this will be more difficult, but maybe we need to bring further efforts and focus on, an up, not on a technology, but what the technology can bring in the case of, a, of an application of that technology. And maybe in this way, maybe consumers 
will also be more eager to accept that technology. And the case of vaccines for COVID also illustrates that because contrary to what someone would expect, the most traditional uh, methodology in developing vaccines, the normally how this has been done for years on attenuated virus, is not the one that is most accepted by, you know, by uh, uh, citizens, but uh, contrary, the one that was developed with the most uh, innovative technology on MRA and also using nano delivery products. And so that also teaches that maybe uh, the need for something could also change the perception when science says that it's safe and will not damage the environment or, or the, the animal or public health. Yeah, for sure. COVID vaccines is the very current example we have of this. Um, Jack, what do you think? How do we strike the right balance between respecting citizen opinion, but also following the science? Yeah, I think it comes back to the psychology again, building on what Marta said. You know, it's not surprising that people are okay with vaccines for a uh, public health problem like COVID, because when we're sick, we're willing to take a risk to get better. But when you're eating food, you don't feel like you should be taking a risk at all. And so we're very risk averse in that setting. And rather than focus on the science, and I spent 20 years talking about this topic, and you know the way people would approach it is they would try to beat people up with science and overwhelm them with scientific evidence in order to convince them. And unfortunately, you know, that doesn't really convince anybody of anything. We really need to focus on the values that people hold. Uh, I spent 13 years with the US government and I never met a single person who was anti-science. I met a lot of people who didn't trust the government and they didn't trust big business, but they all love science. And the problem is when science and values are at odds, values always win. And so whenever somebody says that they're concerned about GMOs or pesticides or other things, often what they're really saying is, I'm concerned about the health and safety and welfare of my family. And that's something we can all relate to. And so I think it's very important that we sometimes try to dig down a little bit deeper to understand where the concern that's being voiced actually comes from, what is that place, and then try to address it. And then we can begin to understand some of the trade-offs that people make. On one hand, we want to reduce pesticides. On the other hand, we want to produce more food to feed people. And so, you know, people at some point have to begin to recognize that there will be a trade-off between some of the things that they desire. And then you can begin to have a real conversation at that point. I think that's a good point. You can't beat people over the head with science. I think we've seen that that, that doesn't work. And I think it's also very true that there's very few people who would say that they are anti-science. The question is that they don't think the science they're being presented with is the real science. Um, Joanna, I want to pick up on something that Jack just said, which is uh, that you need to understand where the concerns are coming from. And I wonder if a big part of that is getting to people early before um, opinions start really hardening. And then it, over time, I guess it gets harder and harder to dispel uh, some people's deeply held convictions about these things. Um, how important is it to get to people early and how can policymakers and scientific advisors get better at that? Yeah, exactly, Dave. I think that's the whole point uh, or, or important point of this discussion. We need to learn about those concerns, about 
um, any potential questions on new technologies as soon as they are being, uh, you know, discovered or, or considered. So I think at this stage, uh, we need to listen to consumers, listen to their questions, to their concerns, to their perceptions on new technologies, technologies, and that way we can start building their trust because we then tailor our um, our communication to what they are actually what they actually want to know and what they actually need to know and that way um a we we, we can get their buy-in or we can just work with them towards accepting certain new technologies um, or if there is a situation where there is a clear disagreement or um, when people really don't don't feel interested in those these technologies at least save time on actually or ruling them out and and not going forward with creating them so i think it's it's very very important and critical to start learning those perception at the very very early early stages of um of creating new technologies and new innovations tom how is the high level expert group dealing with this question of striking a balance between uh, people's opinions and science well, we're, we've we've done an extensive piece of work on what has what uh, elements are there up to now. I mean, there's a, a very wide range of of bodies have been established, both at national, regional, and international level, uh, which aim to to a greater or lesser extent uh, inform policymakers about with with evidence. And so we, we are seeing the degree to which some of those systems have worked. Uh, and we'd be we'd suggesting that the, the ones that have demonstrably worked should be further built upon. I think this comes back to the issue of trust, um, which is hugely important. And uh, I mean, we can see the, the many, many debates in many different areas in the world about how uh, the, the science community uh, hasn't got the trust of a significant part of the population. And this comes back, I think, to the really important the, the necessity of having credible institutions at both at national and international level, uh, wh where, you know, at least a, a solid majority of people can trust. And it, it comes back to what Marta was talking about, I think, about, I mean, we, we've seen over the last 25 years the gradual uh, increased credibility of food safety re uh, authorities, both at national and now at European level. And there are, as Martha says, they're very concerned with how you uh, communicate your audience first approach there. And it's, it's that sort of thing, I think, which is critically important. But the other thing I think which has is, a, is an important phenomenon in this year, the year of the Food System Summit, is the fact that we've had, and are still going on, dialogues, what's called food systems dialogues, in over 140 countries around the world. And the whole purpose of these uh, dialogues is, in a, is to raise debate and raise informed debate uh, about some of the critical issues associated with food systems. So I think if we are to make progress in this year, we will certainly always acknowledge the fact that each country is different, different background, different history, different approach to its food culture. Uh, 
but we could be we in in these wider international debates we could be moving to a, a stage where we can get more broad agreement at international level about a few of the key issues about for example the links between food nutrition and health and what needs to be put in place uh, to deal with that about the need for in in an increasing number of countries for ministries of food and ministries food and agriculture and ministries of health to start talking to each other about the necessity for credible authoritative institutions uh, who 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 have to be continually work on keeping that credible voice and evidence based and putting it out there into the public domain acknowledging that you are still going to get a very wide range of opinion on these topics. Hirt, from a business perspective, what do you think is the best way to factor in the opinion and the impressions of your customers? I'm not sure there is a best way, Dave. There, there, are, there are different ways of doing things. It definitely always starts with listening and trying to understand what's really at stake here, right? So that's the basic point. And so if you link it to the question you had before there on, on emotion, then that is, and it's very much what Jack was saying there earlier. It's like, why are people saying their food is emotional? Why are people emotional about it? And so how do customers and consumers deal with that is something which is crucial to understand and try to reply to, right? Because we cannot, uh, we cannot accept that we don't reply to it. It is a real concern that people often have. If we keep an open mind on how data and how science is changing perceptions and can help to change perception, that's already one big step, right? Because it's, it's, you know, oops, there's a lion. That's a different question completely when I'm walking in a savanna versus when I'm walking in a zoo. The data and the science tell us what can be done and how those opinions can be adjusted to it. Uh, and there isn't a second element I would like to, to say to that, and that is related to your question there, is that it's very much changing or it's very much dependent on which type of trade-offs are we willing to make. If yes, consumers have a concern, but we also need to communicate and make sure people understand there are consequences to the choices we make. If we do create a very tight, a very, very safe system, that's excellent. If we make innovation so difficult that Europe will opt out of certain innovation systems and other pieces in the world will, then things will move. And certainly for a global company like, my, like, like I'm working for, we will have to go and we will have to make sure we keep the options open for the wider consumers and for the population. Because the big growth in the 10 billion people that we're going to is probably not going to happen in Europe, but in other places. So it's finding that balance between, yes, let's accept the emotion, but let's, be, let's make sure that we make the decisions more and more based on, on the science and on the data behind. That's probably the biggest challenge that we have nowadays. Okay, let's go to the questions that have come in from the audience. We have a first question here from Gun Rudquist from SU Baltic Sea Center. Uh, communication to policymakers is also key, but much different from to consumers. What are your experiences? Marta, I think this is a really good question for you because you have this kind of dual role of advising policymakers and communicating to the public. So what are the differences there when you are uh, making that communication? 
Well, the, the outcomes that we produce are addressed to policymakers. That's where we receive our mandate, from uh, mostly from DG Sante, but also from the European Parliament and member states, and uh, the, because they have specific needs for that mandate to, to come to us. So uh, that's addressed to them. But after that, then we have also lay summary, um, you know, from the opinions we produce, and also sometimes infographics, visuals, so to help also to that the, the the general public and consumers can understand. So we more and more have evolved to a, an evolution of our communication. In the past, was only this output very scientific with a lot of uh, you know technical words there to um, these lay summaries uh, that are addressed to a wider public and also then these infographics or, or campaigns. And for example, recently we have won the Ombudsman Award in the EU for communicating on the African swine fever to different countries and what can be done to reduce the spread of this uh, animal disease. Uh, and that's something that was very much welcome because it's and it's a different kind of uh, up, uh, uh, communication product. So now we are more and more taking into account this uh, diverse of audience and doing different um, communication products for different audiences. Thanks. Here, I think this is also a good question for you because you guys are talking to policymakers who are crafting legislation and also consumers. Is there a big difference between that communication when it comes to science? On the basis of science, I would say not so much. To the point that Marta was making earlier about audience first, there is. Because we need to recognize that consumers and policymakers have completely different objectives. And the ranking of in priority of what they're trying to achieve is different. And therefore, you need to adjust your communication to that. Um, it is getting towards regulators in different countries. It is getting. It, it is stricter and it follows, uh, there is a clearer expectation on what are, call it the facts and figures that are related to it and how the impact is on society as a whole. From that point of view, it's maybe, it's, it's, it, in a way it's easier because it is much more a facts and figures based type of communication. Towards consumers, uh, it's much more emotional again. And there you have to find that, again, from that audience first perspective, you have to find a different balance to uh, how does this answer to the benefits that this thing is offering to consumers and how does it help? How does it reinforce the values that these people have and the values what people are trying to achieve in the world? So, yes, it is really different, but the science basis behind, if you like, is exactly the same. Uh, Tom, is this something that the expert panel has looked at, the differences between communicating to policymakers and the public, or is it mostly concerned with communication to the public? No, I think uh, our primary focus will be, in fact, on uh, how we communicate to policymakers, because there's, you know, there's a, 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 a huge set of issues in here about how policymakers, what role they're going to play in transforming food systems and what sort of research public research and innovation agendas need to be uh, underpinning uh, transfor transformed food systems what's the balance between regulation and voluntary effort with, with the community with the uh, vo voluntary codes of, of conduct um, these are these are, are, are critically important issues and i think um, 
what what we are our primary audience that we're feeding our report into is firstly the European Commission, uh, and they will be uh, using our work to take a, a position at the Food Systems Summit and beyond, and indeed linking it to other work that's going on in terms of the, the direction of policy under the European Green Deal, the farm to fork, biodiversity, etc. And the second audience is the food, the food system summit itself, and the scientific group uh, for the, of the food system summit. We will be presenting uh, to them at the end of end of uh, at the end end of July. So, I think we would we certainly have to take account of the of the reality that the consumer and citizens that uh, Joanna spoke about earlier are. are, are crucial players but for us i think for us as as independent and independent expert group i think the primary target audience for our market for our for our report is indeed policymakers okay so our next question is on a specific piece of policy it comes from tassos coitus uh, I would like to ask the panel, how do they feel about eco-labels adopted in food products, the e-gas traffic light system? I know this has been a contentious issue. Joanna, let me put this question to you since you're dealing with uh, food information. Uh, what, do you, what do you make of the eco-labels that have been adopted? It's an interesting question. I think it's uh, it's very important and currently very relevant for people to look at the eco labels. It's something that has been brought up in a, in the past few years very often. So um, so yeah, it's going to be it's something that people are for sure looking looking into, and they are more and more interested in. Um, yeah. Um, I'm not sure, sorry, what the question was whether consumers, can you repeat that question, Dave, please? Sure, yeah, it's just what, what do you make of eco-labels? Are they, I mean, I imagine the, the questioner wants to know, are they really incorporating the science in the best way? Uh, and I think we could really broaden that out to labeling in general, um, but specifically, mm -hmm. you'd asked about the, the e-gas traffic light system. Uh, yeah, uh, sorry, I will pass that question. I think Jack has uh, has some interesting point to say on, on that one. Yes, Jack wanted to comment um, on this. Jack, what's your take on this labeling issue? Yeah, um, on one hand, you know, I, I think it's a great idea. People are very interested in having information on sustainability metrics. Um, the, the challenge, of course, is that trade-off between local sustainability and global sustainability that an eco-label needs to capture because you know, if you have an organic farm, you're gonna maybe use less pesticides, less fertilizer and other things. So you have a lo smaller local environmental impact. But if you produce less food, you may have a larger global impact. So there's that trade-off between local and global. And that's just always gonna be difficult for any single label because some people are gonna be mad because you're focused on global sustainability and others are gonna be upset because you're focused on local. So that's one aspect of it. The other is that unfortunately labels don't have much of an impact on what people actually do. And we know this from nutrition labels. You know, everybody says they read labels, um, but when you track people's eye movements when they go through a grocery store, the fact is very few people are actually using that information to inform their decisions. And so uh, I think if it moves companies to think more deeply 
about the sustainability of their products they produce, that's probably going to be its biggest impact on you know, the sustainability story, not perhaps exactly what consumers do with it. Here, would you agree with Jack's characterization that labeling doesn't really work and that we can see that from nutrition labels? And so then maybe we could assume that it also wouldn't work for sustainability labels? It's a vague area, but largely, yes, I agree with Jack. And I want to link it also to what, what Marta was saying earlier. If if people want to believe it, they 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 put a relatively higher weight to it, right? And if if you don't believe it, then then you don't like it. Um, think about things like a if you think about chicken and chicken meat. Uh, if you have fast growing chickens versus slow growth chickens, slow growth chickens may be more more uh, from an animal welfare point of view a little bit more advantaged, but they have a larger CO2 uh, expression than than fast growing chickens. And so, what do you put on the label then? And so, part of the concern. So, on the one hand, we're absolutely not only from a, a cargo point of view, but also from a from different trade associations I'm part of, we're not against labels at all. But then there also needs to be a communication to the audience about what does this label mean? And in a number of cases, we've seen things where people have been very fragmented and very proportional in what they would like to put on quote unquote their label. And then it becomes an in-crowd type of thing which again, to the point that Jack was making, relatively few people actually use. Okay, I wanna take this next question here. This question is from Mai Lei. Uh, what about greenwashing in the food industry with the help of science? What's being done to prevent it? Um, Tom, let me put that question to you. Is this something that the, the expert panel is thinking about, the misuse of science? Yeah, I think this is this is a real issue. Um, I, I think there there may be certain cases where in certain countries where um, a view is being put forward that uh, environmental standards are being uh, attained, and in fact, the evidence behind that is is not there. So I I, I do think we're, we are back to the credibility of of institutions who are able to pronounce on uh, issues like this and if there is greenwashing i think it should be called out and um uh, so i mean and it's not just science that has a role here this is where uh, i suppose the role of activism and, and of consumer and citizens groups have a role if they can put forward the evidence to show that greenwashing is, is is part and parcel of a narrative within a country uh, that should be put on the table i think marta have you ever felt that the the research and the work of efsa is being used in this way to to mislead on the science or have a greenwashing mm, not really that I, not that i can give any examples today but what is really important is that the information to consumers needs to be factual and evidence-based. And you've seen also that in Europe, there have been a lot of efforts into that direction. For example, uh, regarding uh, health claims and nutritional claims that compared to other countries where you can lay, you know, write in the label everything you want as saying this is good for this or for that. In the EU, we have also the, the health claims regulation that says that you cannot uh, put that claim if it's not been substantiated by evidence and been uh, approved by EFSA. And, and that's, uh, I think, a very 
important trend and direction that we should keep going on um, giving consumers exactly the right information and not misinforming them. But that's not an easy, and it's not easy also being a consumer. You know, I think in the the, the education system, do not are not really focus on educating consumers and regarding foods is different than regarding maybe an electronic appliance that you buy every you know several years but food you are confronted several times every day in making choices in making decisions what you are eating so i think uh, you know in, in including uh, consumer education areas in in education in a uh, to kids and to teenagers is incredibly important because these will be then the consumers for the future and will need to make informed decisions. So for me, consumer information is very important and should not be misleading. Thank you. And Kirt, I want to put that question to you as well. I mean, Marta mentioned that there are different, maybe the, the what you can say on a packaging is different in different regulatory regimes. So. Uh, is, is there a risk that consumers come to see uh, some of the science that's being presented, maybe specifically on labels or packaging, as some kind of greenwashing as we're getting into this area of sustainability labeling, sustainability communication? Yes, that, that risk is absolutely there and it doesn't help. I mean, um, echoing and, and, and supporting what the other what the panelists there were saying, it's not something we want and that we're in favor of. So it, it doesn't help at all on the long term if it's truly greenwashing. So let's the facts and the figures and let's use the data which are available. And for those kind of communication, let's make sure that we use the science and the data. So that's one element of the story. The other reality of life is indeed that in different places of the world, there are different regulatory systems and there are different demands on how and what should be labeled. Now, if people, if you want to, and, and I think most companies, probably all companies are trying their absolute best to make sure that we do stick to those regulations and make sure that we communicate because nobody wants to lose customers. And so if we do keep working on that, and if we share that, we're going to get there. The transparency on it and calling it out when things go wrong is the best protection we have to keep that trust in the food system that has been mentioned here a number number of times, without which everything erodes, right? Well, we're just about out of time, but I want to get some quick concluding thoughts from each of you. Maybe you could give a 30-second answer to this question. Joanna, I'll start with you. What do you think is the most important thing that we need to do to improve the way that science is used in policymaking? Yeah, I think to maximize, to maximize our success, um, we need to speak with people, not at people. We need to speak together. We need to all be engaged in these conversations. Uh, we can't work in silos. We need to, we need to uh, unite. For a, for a common benefit. And um, instead of bombarding people with facts, we need to listen and communicate um, to what is required and what is needed and asked by people. Great, uh, let's go to Jack next. Jack, what do you think is the most important thing we need to do? Yeah, I, I like what Johanna said. I mean, we need to lead people to knowledge, not beat them up with science. And because of that, we really need to bring more social science research into our conversations about how to communicate science. So we need the science of science communication to be just as central to our research focus 
as the science behind sustainability and nutrition and other things. And it, it needs to be elevated as part of the conversation. And that's what we're doing here today. Great. Thanks, Hirt. Let's go to you. What do you think is the most important thing? I agree with a lot of, uh, of everything that was said there. It's about getting that systems view in, in top of people's mind, not only the life sciences, but also the, the consumer sciences and the social sciences with that. And then also communicate about the trade-offs that will be necessary to progress the system. Thanks a lot. Uh, Marta, let's go to you next. Well, not much to add. I also agree with the previous speakers. And uh, yes, I think in, including social science, uh, you know, is as part also of when assessing risk and, and part of a communication plan is also very important. And now also we will also we are also developing a general risk communication plan together with the commission and member states so that uh, to set up a protocol with roles, responsibilities and communication along the risk analysis process. And I think as has also been said that the earlier we start, the better. So reflecting how this, uh, a, a, you know, an undertaken or, or a, a possible mandate or a, a risk assessment will be communicated from the very beginning and identifying which are the audiences and via the use of social science, we can also be best place to target the messages so to reach uh, all of the audiences and the consumers. And finally, Tom, I guess from, from your expert group, we'll be getting a number of things that are viewed as important. But what do you think uh, is the most important thing we need to do, of course, ahead of what your group is going to tell us in Rome shortly? Well, I'd like to finish, Dave, more or less where I started. I think we need to realize, all of us, that this food system summit is a very rare event when food and food systems are have the possibility to be put close to the top of the political agenda. And that should will be reflected by the fact that the, the summit in September will be attended by heads of government and heads of state. So there is, in each of our countries, the opportunity to try to push the importance of this issue close to the top of national political agendas and then the wider international agenda. But then on top of that, uh, it, there's an opportunity that we start moving towards agreement on some of the core practical issues that we should be focusing upon. There, the, we, the, the Food System Summit has been working on what's called five action tracks high-level uh, policy objectives, but down below that, they're looking what they call at game-changing ideas, where they, they could, if something is to be implemented, they could really make a difference. So I'm hoping that not only will the summit in September move the, this issue up towards, up the political agenda, but also there's a practical agreed agenda, which we can all of us work forward going into the future. Thank you. Thanks, Tom, and thanks to all of the panelists for some great insights today, and thanks to the audience for following along and asking some great questions. We did have a question from the audience about whether the video will be made available after. It will. Actually, you can find it immediately once we're done on the same link you've been watching it on now, or you can find it on the Euractive YouTube, LinkedIn, and Twitter accounts. Uh, so thank you, everybody, for spending your morning with us and talking about these tricky issues of science. I think we, uh, 
I certainly had a lot of food for thought today, no pun intended, uh, and very much looking forward to what the expert group is going to come out with shortly. Uh, so thanks for spending your morning with us, and I wish you a great rest of your day.